eight days. What started before creation and was whispered throughout every day that followed. Thousands of years of prophecy and centuries of silence all led to the birth of a king. For 33 years, he walked and talked and prayed and healed and showed us a perfect life of love, willingly stepping into the greatest sacrifice of all to bring us into a defining moment that would forever restore humanity. Eight days. Well, hello, friends. If I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I just got to say, you guys sound good from backstage. You feel like you've, uh, you've got some gusto today, which I like. I appreciate. I want to welcome you here, and if you're joining us online, man, we are so excited that you're here and expectant for what God's going to do today. I want you to actually start by looking at your neighbor. I know that you made him feel very welcome, but I just want you to say, you look great this morning. Doesn't have to be true. We're just trying to leave people a little better than we found them, you know? And I want to start a little bit different today. I actually want to start by uh, actually all of us together, like saying a declaration. And we don't typically do this. It's, uh, but if you're online, you can just type this. But if you're here, I just actually want you to repeat after me. We're going to say this together. I want you to say, I will not miss this moment. That was about 50%. Let's try it again. I will not miss this moment. There you go. Have you ever had a week where there just wasn't enough hours to do everything that you had to do? So for me, that was last week, and then this week came, and it was far worse than last week. It was one of those weeks where it was like trying to put together a puzzle, and you just didn't have all the pieces together, and nothing was fitting. And uh, this Thursday morning, I, I got to hang out with our kids. Usually Kristen watches them, and I work on Thursdays, but this week was a little bit different, and we had to mix things up and get creative. So I was sitting in that seat and trying to get the kids where they needed to go. I brought my sweet girl, Brooklyn, to preschool. Then I brought Addie to her dance class, and here was my plan. My plan was to take the 45 minutes of dance class to get as much work done as I possibly could. That was the window that I had to be productive. I had my backpack on my back with my laptop. I had my coffee in my hand. I was caffeinated and ready to go. I was ready to flip open my laptop at a moment's notice to get some work done. And I got Addie all the way to where I was supposed to get her. I did the handoff with the teacher. And as I was walking away, though, I heard this little cute voice behind me with this question, Daddy, you watch me? She said, Daddy, you watch me? And I struggled with it for a second. But I decided to stick with my guns. I said, Addie, Daddy's got some important work to do. So as much as I'd love to watch you and your little minion friends flail around aimlessly for the next 45 minutes, I'm actually going to go knock out some tasks in the other room. Now, keep in mind, I didn't say it exactly like that. I was much sweeter to her, but... If you've ever seen a, a, a class of two-year-olds dancing, you know that it's true. There's very little dance involved. It's more of a series of short sprints, wild flailing bodies, and teachers telling kids not to lick the walls. <laughs> so that's what I felt like I was missing. But essentially what I said was, sweetheart, I'd love to watch, but your dad's got to work. And I started walking away, but she didn't let me get far. She called out again, and this time it wasn't a question. It was a statement. She said, Daddy, you watch. You watch. 
And I like to say that I've got the pants in this relationship, but at the end of the day, I turned around and I smiled at my girl because I'm completely whipped. And I just said, okay, okay. I put my backpack down and I took a deep breath. And for the next 45 minutes, I just stood there and watched my sweet two-year-old dance and spin and jump and sprint and flail ribbons wildly to the sound of the Frozen 2 soundtrack. And I'm telling you right now, it was the best 45 minutes of my week. I did not expect applause, but I receive it. I receive it. Friends, I don't think I blinked once in that 45 minutes. And when she was done, she ran straight up to me, gave me the biggest hug of my life. And I kid you not, she grabbed my cheeks like this and she said, Daddy, I love you so much. And I about died and went to heaven right there. I even took a picture of the moment to commemorate it so that I could remember. I mean, it's just not fair. It is just not fair in this relationship I have. Uh, she, yeah, she, she can tell me whatever she wants. I'm going to do it, you know? And it was the best moment on my week, and I almost missed it because I was too busy trying to cross things off of a list. I wonder if you've ever been there. Martin Luther's got this quote that's been doing something to me this week. He says this. He says, I've got so much work to do today. I better spend two hours in prayer instead of one. I've got so much work to do today. I better spend two hours in prayer instead of one. How good is that? As if to say, I've got so much to do today. I better spend more time with God, not less, or else I'm going to get lost along the way. I've got so much to do today, I better be more intentional about the precious moments that I get to have with my girls. I've got so much to do today, I better be more intentional about being grounded and rooted in the right stuff because the Lord knows that the busier that I get, the more I struggle to decipher the difference between what's urgent and what's important. The busier I become, the harder it gets for me to figure out what is truly important and what is just loud. What's just urgent? I've got so much to do today, I better actually ask God to help me to guide my steps so I don't get lost in all of this chaos. And friends, I will not miss this moment. You know, one of the primary struggles of humanity is not knowing the difference between what's important and what's urgent. What's important and what's just loud and coming at our faces. So I've been asking God to actually invite me into those moments and to help me to decipher and decide what is it that you want me to focus my attention on today because I do not want to miss this moment. And today we're walking into this new series. It's called Eight Days where we're going to be taking the time to actually slow down and notice the little human moments that happen along the way on the path to Easter. Because more and more, I'm just convinced that it's the little things and it's the little moments that are actually big things and big moments in the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God is truly upside down, then it's not just true in the little things. It's true that the little things are the big things. And the way that we're going to do this is actually by walking through Holy Week a day at a time. And what that means is that today we're actually going to look at Palm Sunday. Yes, I am very aware that it is not Palm Sunday. And just uh, to give you a heads up, when it comes time to be Palm Sunday, we're actually not talking about Palm Sunday because, like I said, we're talking about that today. So wrap your brain around that because we are going to enter into this narrative. And the cool thing about this narrative is that we've heard it so many times, but I'm actually inviting us to take a look and to actually spend some time looking at the small moments because it's the small moments that can change our heart. 
And so I'm excited for this series. I'm excited to take a closer look today at the story of Palm Sunday. But before we do, I just want to center us and actually invite God's presence into this moment. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, God, there is so much to do today. So God, would we be a people who spend more time with you, not less? Would we be a people who lean into you, not away? Would we be a people who are committed, God, to finding not just the thing that you're inviting us to, but God, the thing, God, that you have actually presented? God, would we be a present people? Will we not be too far ahead or too far behind? God, would you show us what it looks like to walk in step with your spirit? God, would you show us what it looks like to listen? God, not just to speak. God, show us what it looks like to be a beacon of your hope in your life in this world. You've called us to be salt and light, God. Would we not be a people who have lost our saltiness? Would we be a people, God, who preserve, God, who point towards the King of Kings? And Jesus, as we move into Easter, would you show us what it looks like, God, not just to walk through this season, but God, to engage with you in a way that changes our lives forever. God, we are so disinterested in information to stick into our back pocket. We want an encounter with you. God, we are hungry for more of your presence. God, shape us, change us, mold us, and send us out. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. I pray that prayer a lot, but I mean it. Man, I do not want to be up here spewing information that swells and puffs us up. I want to be a part of a community that says we are engaging with the living God, and we are going to be sent different than we came. So what does it look like to have that kind of expectancy? Today we're going to dive into this story. We're going to be in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to read it to you. If you've got your Bible or an app, you can pull that out. If not, it's going to be up on the screen. And maybe for you, you are an auditory learner, so you can just listen. And I'm just going to read this over you. Whatever it takes for you to engage, I invite you to do that. So I'm going to read this all in one chunk. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. We're going to get to that later, but I just love that. What a beautiful picture of obedience. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Then brought the donkey and colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. They asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this is the text that we're going to be looking at today. And just for context... I don't mean to swell it up too much, but this is the beginning of the Easter story. This is kind of a big deal. The resurrection of Jesus is where we're headed, and that is the apex of human history and the biblical narrative, which means that everything before that was actually pointing to this moment, and everything after it was a reverberation and a response to this moment. And so Easter 
really is what it's about. Christmas is great, friends. Don't get me wrong. I love presents. I'm like Ricky Bobby. I love eight pound, six ounce, newfound or newborn infant baby Jesus just as much as the next guy. Baby Jesus is awesome. But the reason why Christmas is so important isn't because a baby was born. It was actually because of who that baby would become. It's because that baby would become the pure and spotless lamb. He would live the perfect life and die the perfect death so that you and I, not your neighbor, I'm talking about you, could actually have right relationship with God. And this is the moment where hope was actualized in the world. And this is the story that we get to wade into and actually look at and consider together. And like all good stories, it starts with a donkey. And you can look at your neighbor right now and you can say donkey. Some of you are like, man, I definitely have called them a donkey outside of church, but I never thought I would get the pastor's blessing to, to say that in church. This is, this is a great moment for me. But again, I'm, I'm just going to read a couple verses here from the beginning of the chapter. It says, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then again, we get back to this verse. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And friends, this is such a beautiful moment. And if we just actually take the time to look at it, I'm convinced it can do something in our hearts and it can leave us changed. And I love this moment, not just because Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. I mean, that's cool. It's cool that that's just further confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was. But that's not what makes this moment beautiful. What makes it beautiful is the fact that if you think about it, Jesus could have gone about getting a donkey any way that he wanted to. We're talking about Elohim, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Almighty God. And he could have snapped his fingers and poof, there would have been a donkey right there. This is within his realm. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have formed it out of dirt. He could have formed it out of clay. He could have asked God the Father to send him a donkey, and there would be a donkey. And yet what makes this moment so beautiful is that he doesn't ask God the Father for a donkey. He actually chooses to ask his friend. He chooses to partner with people and send people out to go and fetch one for him. Friends, I need you to know this. Jesus does not need help in this moment. And yet in this beautiful moment, the God of the universe chooses to ask for help from lowly humans. And this moment tells you all sorts of things about this Jesus that we worship. It shows you that Jesus always has been and always will be completely obsessed with empowering and partnering with people like you and people like me. Amen? He doesn't need our help, but he desperately wants you to be a part of the story. So he writes you in. He says, will you go and will you get that donkey for me? He says, go to the village ahead of you. Find the donkey that's tied there and bring it to me. So let's just take a moment and appreciate the ludicrous nature of what Jesus is asking the disciples to do. Jesus is asking them to grab a donkey that doesn't belong to them and bring it back to him. And my favorite part is this. He says, if anyone calls you out, just tell them that Jesus needs it. Which, for the record, is a terrible excuse. 
I would not recommend using that one. I was trying to think of like what the modern equivalent would be of this moment. And if you can just consider with me for a moment what it would feel like if you looked out into your yard and somebody was stealing your car and you confronted them about it and they told you that Jesus told them to do it. How many of you would be like, oh, well, in that case, cool, let me get you the keys. Please carry on and go. I look at this story and I'm like, really, Jesus, you're going to just send them out there, say, go to the next village and grab this donkey, and if the owner sees them, just tell them it's all good, it's for God. Like, I wonder how that conversation really would have gone. I know if I was the one on the receiving end, I'd be like, you know what, maybe Peter should do this one. He's pretty bold. He walked on water once. It seems like a great deal for him. This is not my kind of a plan. I'm like, Jesus, you could have done it anyway, and this is the path that you chose. It's like, come on. Dude, there's so many dynamics at play in this moment, but here's what I want you to see. Jesus isn't just asking them to run an errand. He's asking them to take a risk. And when it comes to following Jesus, Jesus will invite you to do things that you're not comfortable with. It's not a punishment. It's actually preparing you for that which is next. God's looking for an obedient people. God is looking for a bold People, God is looking for a people who actually hold out their yes and say, I don't need all the details. I just need to know that you are the one who's asking me because you are and you always have been good and faithful. What does it look like for us to actually take a risk? Jesus is asking that of his disciples. There's this question in this story, which is, are you willing to go and actually get this donkey? But like a lot of good questions, there's a question beneath the question, and that question is, do you trust me do you trust me and that's what jesus wants to know not just with them but with you do you trust me are you willing to take a risk on my behalf are you willing to look like a fool if i if i ask you to go and do this thing you know because it's not enough to believe there's a difference between belief and faith. Belief is more passive. Faith is actually, or trust is what I'm actually getting at. Trust is the thing that actually compels us into action. I love this verse in James 2. It says it pretty bluntly, but it says, You believe that there's a God? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So Jesus isn't asking if you believe. He's asking, do you trust me with your life? Do you trust me with your identity? Do you trust me with everything that you have? Are you willing to look like a fool if it means being obedient to me? Which would you choose? Friends, the question in the middle of this story is simple. Do you trust Jesus enough to walk up to a house you've never been to and take a donkey that's not yours, knowing full well that if the owner catches you in the act, your only explanation is that God told you to do it? Friends, I know you believe, but do you trust God that much? Would you actually put yourself out there for him? At the heart of it all, Jesus wants to know, are you available to me? If I say go, will you go? In Matthew 21, 6, we end up there again. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them to do. It, it feels like kind of just this plain line, but I feel like this is one of the most powerful verses in this scripture. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them to do. Man, what if that was our legacy as a church? We were the church that went and did as Jesus instructed them to do. I was thinking about when we get to heaven and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what it looks like to get that well done, good and faithful servant. It looks like being a disciple who goes and does what Jesus instructs them to do. 
So I put it before you again. Do you trust God? Not do you believe that he's up there and he's orchestrating. Do you trust God enough to move towards that which God has given you? That's the kind of disciple that I want to be when I grow up. The kind of disciple that says, Jesus, I don't always understand why it is that you ask me to do the things that you do. And I don't know all the details. And yet I'm still going to give you my yes because I'd rather look like a fool than miss out on the life that I've promised or that you've promised me. Friends, I wonder, when's the last time that you took a risk for Jesus? When's the last time that you said yes to something that could have made you look like a fool? Because I'm telling you right now, here's what Jesus wants to know. Are you willing to say yes, even when it doesn't make sense? Are you willing to say yes, even when it gets difficult? And are you willing to say yes, even if it means looking like a fool? Because God is looking for partners, but he can only partner with people who trust him enough to give him the yes. And in this Palm Sunday moment, Jesus is saying, I know you believe me, but do you trust me? I know you've been faithful, church, but will you be bold? So the disciples bring Jesus the donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem, just like the prophet said. Scripture says in verse 8, a large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And it's interesting to me because we call it Palm Sunday, but there's actually only one account, which is John's account, that actually tells us that the branches in this story are palm branches. John 12, verse 13 says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. So it is important. They laid down palm branches, which they used back in the day uh, to celebrate victory and to honor royalty. And so there's a lot of symbolism that's happening in this moment. By laying down these branches, they're declaring that Jesus is king and announcing his victory. And if you dig a little bit deeper, right underneath the surface, there's even more meaning to find because palm trees took 30 years to bear fruit and a man couldn't become a high priest until he was 30 and the ministry of Jesus started when he was 30. So not only did the palm trees signify Jesus' victory and his royalty, they were also reflecting that he was the high priest, the promised one, and the Messiah. So it's not just any branches, it's palm branches that they put before him as an announcement of the victorious king who's the high priest and the Messiah. And it's this beautiful moment of clarity and honor as they receive their king. And it's just such a beautiful moment, but it's actually the cloaks that I want us to, to take closer attention to. Because verse 8 says that the crowd spreads their cloaks on the road. And I want you to see that, that this is a completely different type of an offering. This isn't just something that they found on the side of the road that they put on the road. This is actually a picture of them laying down something of worth. Friends, I don't know how much you know about cloaks, but this was like their cloak. This was their garment. This is what gave them shade during the heat of the day and warmth during the cold of the night. This is what covered them. This is what they wrapped themselves in every single day. This was one of their prized possessions, and they were throwing it down at the feet of Jesus as he walked by. And I need you to know this. There were no Burlington cloak factories in the day. That wasn't a part of this culture. They didn't have 16 of them that they had in their, uh, in their closet at home. This was their cloak this was a prized possession that they were laying down to you can say what you want to say about how fickle this crowd was they knew how to put before a sacrifice to a king and really that's what this season is about leading into easter this lenten season it's a season of waiting and it's a season of anticipating and laying things down in an attempt to position ourselves not just to better see but to better receive more of jesus it just makes me wonder what God might be inviting you to lay down today. I wonder if it's not just the 
palm branches. I wonder if there's something valuable that God's inviting you. Maybe you're not the person who gives up something for Lent, but God's putting something on your heart and saying, man, what would it look like for me to lay this down so I actually have capacity to receive more of what you're trying to give me this, this Easter? I was thinking about it, and maybe for some of you it's, it's something simple like this. Maybe it's your phone. You know, this thing's got this this screen time app, and it shows you how much time you spend on there. And yesterday, I'm, I'm not looking to brag here, but uh, it told me that I picked up my phone 116 times. And guys, only 98 of those were the Bible app. I'm kidding. That's not true. That's not true. But I'm asking the question, what would it look like for you to take something that actually like gives you like a little bit of your identity, like when it buzzes, it's saying you are important and actually putting it down and saying that I'm not important because this thing is buzzing all day. I'm important because God says that I'm important. What does it look like 116 times to say, you know what, I'm actually going to go a different direction because I've got some slight addiction to this and I want my body and soul to be completely open and available to that which what God wants to give me this Easter season. I wonder for some of you, maybe that's your calendar. Maybe it's not your phone. Maybe it's actually about, man, I am so busy today. What would it look like for me to spend more time investing in God instead of less? What would it look like for me to carve out time instead of just continuing on? And saying, God, what would you even do if I set aside this time with you? How can I lay down my calendar so that I can receive more of what you have for me this Easter? Maybe for some, it's your finances. I feel like God right now is prompting in your heart. What does it look like to lay something down? Not because he wants to take something from you, but because he wants you to be able to receive more of what he has. The story of Palm Sunday invites us to lay down something we hold dear so that we can see more clearly what matters most. I wonder what's something that you could lay down this week that would help you see and experience more Jesus. Verse 9 says, The crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed all shouted. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So the people who were before Jesus and the people who were behind him formed a procession around him as he moved into the city. And they said this simple word, Hosanna. And I don't know if you know what that word means. It just means save us. That's what Hosanna means. It means save us, quite literally. And I think a lot of us misunderstand this word because we use it in a couple different ways. We use it as an exaltation. It's almost like synonymous with hallelujah or praise God or something like that. We say, Hosanna in the highest. And I love that. Keep doing it. But I want you to know that underneath, if you actually look at the root of the word and what it's explaining, it's this beautiful cry for help. It's saying, save us, Jesus. And I've been so encouraged by this. This week, I just, I, I see this picture of this fickle people who are mustering all the courage that they have to prepare their branches and say, Jesus, you are coming in. You are the king. You are the high priest. And I'm going to put down my cloak. I'm actually going to invest something. I'm going to lay down something valuable to me at your feet. And I'm actually going to invite you in. And the first words that are rolling off of their lips as Jesus is walking by is this simple cry, save us. Save us. And I love that prayer. They're just saying, save us. Save us. For the past couple months, I've been leaning into prayer in my own life. And I'm, I'm doing this work of trying to, 
to, to, to actually cut out any just religious words that are just filler for me and just get to the heart of God. What is it that I'm inviting you to do? Can we just have a talk? Can we not have me just try to actually put together an eloquent, pretty prayer for you? Because I know in my gut that you are not impressed with pretty prayers. You are actually moved by just a desperate prayer that just says, save me. Far better than me coming up with some idea and actually being able to beautifully actually articulate it. So you, you just want to hear from the bottom of my heart, Jesus, save me again. I need you today. I've been saying in my, my quiet time, God, I don't want to learn to pray eloquent. I want to learn to pray honest. Because Jesus isn't impressed by pretty prayers. He's moved by honest prayers. And friends, the world doesn't need more Christians who are pretending that everything's good. The world needs more desperate Christians who are pleading with God to save them again. God, I'm not content where I am. I want to break free. God, save me again. Save us, Lord. Friends, Palm Sunday is the day where we trust in God when he calls us to do the uncomfortable. We lay before God what we deem to be essential. And we come before God with our most honest prayers and we say, Hosanna, Jesus, save me. Let me say that one more time. We trust in God when he calls us to do the uncomfortable. What's God trusting you to do? We lay down what we deem to be essential. What is God inviting you to lay down? And then we come before God with our most honest prayers and we say, Hosanna, save me. The story concludes in verse 10. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And if you're here today and you don't know who this Jesus is, let me tell you who he is. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the prince of peace. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the firstborn over all the creation. He is the Savior and our King. And in the words of Eugene Peterson, he is God and God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. Friends, in its simplest form, this is a story about a fickle crowd. Do not get me wrong, this crowd was fickle, they will turn on a dime. But it's a fickle crowd who cries out in their most desperate moment, Hosanna, and there's a faithful Jesus who's on the other side who says, okay. They say, save us, and Jesus says, okay, I know what's coming. I know you're going to flip your script. I know that you are going to fail me, and yet I am so good and so faithful that I'm still going to say yes. And today we celebrate the fact that Jesus is still saying yes to the cries of fickle people who call on his name. Amen? Is anybody thankful for the fact that God says yes to fickle people? Man, I've got so much work to do today, I better spend two hours in prayer instead of one. What does it look like for us in this season to be grounded and rooted in the truth that God has given us? To lay down that which we deem important so that we can have more focus on what's most important. Because I don't know about you, but I do not want to miss the moments that God has for me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, God, I do confess God, it is a struggle to figure out, God, what is most important in a world that's so noisy and chaotic. So I just come before you and I just say, help. God, I say, save us. God, save us from ourselves. 
God, save us from apathy. God, save us from selfishness. God, save us from comfort. God, save us from anything that will keep us in between or that will keep us from you and your plan for our lives. God, we love you. And in this moment, again, we just say, will you send us out different than when we walked in? God, right now, soften our hard hearts. God, so that we can see and experience more of you. God, we love you. We love you. We love you. This is all for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm actually going to invite you to stand. We're actually going to respond with an old song. Well, old-ish. It depends on uh, where you're at in the age category. But it's this, this song called Hosanna. And again, we sing this like an exaltation. And we can. But I need you to know that at its core, what we're saying is, Jesus, save us. So I invite you, do not miss this moment to stand, to reach up high, to get on your knees and to say, Hosanna. God, save us again. Let's worship.